Welcome to the Fully Vested Podcast, brought to you by Dentons and the Chiro Society. As ever, there's a short health warning. This podcast is not designed to provide legal or other advice or give rise to a solicitor-client relationship. You should not take or refrain from taking action based on its content. Specialist legal advice should be taken in relation to the specific circumstances. The views and opinions expressed by those on the podcast are their own and do not represent Dentons, Kairos, or other organizations that they are from. Please see Dentons.com for legal notices. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to episode two of Fully Vested. If you listened in last time, we were discussing general investment terms. If you didn't, please do. Today, we're going to be continuing the conversation around the legalities of investment and discussing some terms closer to our namesake, fully vested. Today's topic is going to be founder vesting. But before we get into it, those of you that have had a look at our picture will notice that there is a fourth man in the room uh, beyond myself and the two Joes and we'll be here on a regular basis, so we want to just introduce him, Edward Abela, our producer. So thank you, Ed, who's giving me a thumbs up. So moving into the episode itself, founder vesting, a topic that is the heaviest negotiated part of many institutional rounds, and as a founder myself, something close to my heart. But what is it? Yeah, so keeping it very high level to start with, um, broadly, the concept of vesting is, is the concept that as time progresses, a founder has a right to a greater portion of the shares that they hold. Um, it, I think it's helpful to kind of illustrate this with, with an example because it's, it's not the most straightforward um, concept. If you are the founder of a company and you have, say, 200 shares in your company, a portion or whole of those shares might be subject to these vesting arrangements. So let's say for the purpose of this example that 50% of those shares, so 100 of the shares, are subject to vesting. That means that those 100 shares are in jeopardy, if you like. Um, a typical example might be that the shares vest over four years on an annual basis. So what that would mean is that if you were to leave after the end of year one, 25% or 25 of your share of those 100 shares have vested and you have the rights to those. If you were to leave after year two, 50% 50 of those shares have vested and so on. Right, okay. And I mean, I have to say as a founder, I'm, I'm sitting here feeling defensive. Like, wh why would I commit to something like this? Yeah, and, and that has to be the right question to ask. And, and you know, to be honest, in negotiating anything, think about what the objective is. Where are we trying to get to? Where are we each trying to get to? What are competing factors here? And then let's try and get there rather than get bogged down in the nitty gritty as to whether it's 50% or 25 each year and so on and so forth. So if you think about it, what this is really looking at is alignment of incentives. So how can the investor on the one hand make sure that the founders are incentivized to stay working on that company, to stick around, to deploy the capital that they've just introduced and deliver on the promises their one hopes will succeed. Um, by the same token, of course, you might say, well, we as a founder are, of course, already invested in that. You know, we've given up our jobs or, you know, we have foregone careers elsewhere. We, we couldn't be more invested. Why do you need to now take away some of my shares? You know, that's a perfectly decent um, debate to have. I mean, I think... These terms are relatively standard now. Um, and so really the negotiation that's gonna take place is gonna be about how many of those shares should be subject to vesting, how quickly should the, the vesting cliff or horizon occur. Um, but there is another dynamic to this, and you know, it's kind of the inter-founder dependence as well as the investor-founder dependence. Um, and really what that is, or at least this is the way that the, the typical argument would play out is, 
So if we go back to our cohort of three founders, our proverbial three founders in the mum's garage that we always go back to. Well, if you're one of those three uh, and you leave after the first six months and the other two stick around, slave away hard for two or three years to make a success of that business, is it fair and right that that third founder who left so swiftly should share in the upside of that business having not invested the same time, money, blood, sweat and tears as the other two. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, so what what should the arrangements between those three be and how should they be brought together as well as, of course, thinking about the investor? That, that's a very interesting point. And it's something that when I'm mentoring uh, would-be entrepreneurs that are, you know, looking, they're right at the beginning of the journey and they are a cohort of co-founders, I will always sort of suggest something similar, just that they have an agreement between themselves going into that business what happens if that comes the case but even harder if you're a few years down the line so i can certainly see the value um coming there and being you know the between the co-founders as well as from you know from the yeah. investor side um but something else that you you mentioned just then which i i thought interesting um and you know putting into some of my own experiences with investors and conversations i've had and obviously, you guys sit on both sides of the table. In one negotiation, you may be representing the founders. In another, you may be representing the, the investors. Um, but something that I kind of learned was you, you'd said how, as the founders, we will assume that, of course, we're invested in this. This is our baby. This is what we've grown and put our lives, quit jobs for, etc. But the investor, you may have only known them for 30 seconds in a pitch, three minutes for a Q&A, and then maybe an hour follow-up meeting. Um, and that was something that struck me the first time that we went through an investment process with Chimera, was that I couldn't assume everyone realized quite how committed to this as I actually am. Um, so that that point you made sort of really did strike home because it was a bit of a realization for myself. Yeah, and I think all... All, all serious investors, and indeed us as a, a venture capital practice, want to see that the founders that we represent are invested in that business. Because at the end of the day, whether an advisor or, or an investor, you too are going to be investing something in the relative success of that business. You know, for us, it's our time or our foregone fees. For the investor, it's the capital that they inject. You want to see that that person truly is driven. Um, and you know, perhaps a topic for a whole other session as to the kind of the filters that we have and the investors have as to what they and where they see positives in, in an investment. But certainly, if you see someone who has foregone a career or has quit an otherwise successful job, but really it's a it's about them being full time engaged in that business. You know, everyone's kind of a little bit skeptical of the part time entrepreneur because it never feels like they're if they're not willing to fully jump into the business. So, well. Why should we? Yeah. And when it comes to sort of what if someone leaves and sort of structuring these investment agreements, where does the uh, the the merit and the weight in terms of on a multi-co-founder basis come into? So is it what that the co-founder perhaps has given up going into the business? What have they personally invested? Or is it more in terms of their contributions on a day-to-day -day basis because it may not be that three co-founders are con contributing completely equally you may have the front man who is or front woman who is the ceo um and someone else that is deliberately performing a sort of a, a minor role now as the business is scaling so 
where where are we getting our weighting from if we if we have different levels of of investment within sort of that, that agreement? That's a good point, Tim. But I mean, Joe, have you ever seen different vesting schedules for different founders in in investment? I think I always just see you know kind of equity prevails, and they say, well, it's the same for everybody. Okay. I think and part of the reason for that is these things are, as you say, heavily negotiated and it can get quite complex and negotiating one set of vesting agreements can take a significant amount of time. So trying to maybe split that out into two or three different <laughs> re regimes yeah. um, has limited benefit. Indeed. Particularly no, if you that, think that, that makes sense. if we're talking about a vesting schedule that say runs over four years and we're talking, assume about early stage investment, then the reality is that the business that's receiving the investment is likely to be worth, you know, close to the square root of nothing during the course of those first couple mm -hmm. of years, because let's face it, if it doesn't get off the ground, it doesn't get off the ground. Yeah. And so the shares actually yeah. only have value later down the line, by which case you'd, you'd hope, or by which time, sorry, you'd hope that the, the shares are vested. So, you know, it, it, every now and then it's worth pulling yourself back from the brink and saying, okay, what, what actually am I negotiating here? And is this a hypothetical? You know, what, what will I be sacrificing? It's easy for me to say that when it's not my shares, but you do need to view some of this through the, that context. And then maybe, in fact, nothing more. It's a, a sacrificial lamb, something you might be able to use to negotiate better terms elsewhere because they, th they think that you're giving up something serious over there. Yeah. And what about key employees who, whether they've bought in to the business via an investment round or whether they've perhaps already exercised vested options which we'll cover in we'll cover the options in a, in a different episode but are they likely to be subject to if they are considered a key employee or is it always just going to be the founders i think the key here is looking at, at the individual's role in the business and how, how important they are to that business i think as a kind of general rule investors will want to make sure that the people who they see as absolutely fundamental to the progression of that business are the people who are subject to these vesting regimes because they're the people that they want to make sure are um, are tied in and have the same aligned interest as the investor. A, a more ordinary employee who you know is um, sadly potentially a little bit more replaceable, less likely to be subject to the vesting arrangements. Yeah. Okay. So, terms. What what might form part of a vesting agreement? Yeah. So look. So. Um, we're going to try and break this down into into some smaller chunks, um, and I think probably what's first the first thing to consider is two terms: good lever and bad lever. And so those are sorts of terms that I think people might have heard banded around before. There are some very narrow definitions, and and often the definitions are kind of what is one; it's it's not the other, um, and so it's kind of this sort of circularity <laughs> of definition. But if we think about it, I think. It's one of those things where you probably always, you know it when you see it, but you need to write it down. So there will be circumstances in which someone leaves the business and that's either considered not a bad thing, you know, a good thing, uh, or at least an acceptable or kind of for a reasonable excuse or, or reason. Um, and then there'll be some circumstances in which probably that person's been forcibly <laughs> removed from the business, you know, so they've been fired or... Or, or, or they've been untoward circumstances surrounding their exit from the business. And so if we kind of have, you know, on the one side, you know, the, the, you know, the good lever, someone who leaves because of no fault of their own, the most obvious circumstances that is normally kind of death or terminal illness where, you know, it's just really nothing to do, to do with their, their fault. And then bad lever, 
would certainly include someone who'd committed gross misconduct or who had done something untoward. But then there's probably a whole range of grey in between. And regrettably, what you often end up doing with the legal drafting is saying that a good lever is someone who leaves for these prescribed angelic reasons, or at least you know, reasons where it's no fault of their own, and a bad lever is everyone else. What, what I would normally then recommend is having some kind of provision which allows the board to make a bad lever a good lever if, in their reasonable opinion, they think that's appropriate to do so. And that's certainly what we've done at Chimera right. in the sense that the board has the discretion to negotiate an exit package. Yeah. But are the definitions of, you know, within the articles for that company, what is a good and what is a bad lever, are those also up for negotiation yeah. within this yeah. sort of work? Absolutely. And I think... You know, so with some some typically later stage companies, you know, you've, you've often introduced what happens in the stage of retirement, you know, when you can see that there's a trajectory for, you know, say one of the key execs is going to retire within the next five years, you know, and so we actually start thinking about the reality of that situation. Um, equally, you know, you might have, say, a, a transient workforce where you know that certain people are you know, it's just a history of people working for the business. They come and do a five-year stint and then they're going to go and work abroad or, yep. you know, do some some other thing. So you probably just start to think about the realities of a situation and how how that actually pans out. But but by and large, you've kind of got the, you know, the you know the, the health or, you know, genuine retirement at, at, at old age and the good lever and the bad lever being the gross misconduct or voluntary resignation, you know, le le leaves for, for, for through their own decision. So as a founder that is deemed by the prescription as a good lever, yeah. when they leave for whatever reason this may be, do they re retain their shares that have not yet vested or will those be ones that they'll lose? I mean, I think that's kind of where you then get into, uh, and we often draw this up either as a kind of, two by two matrix or a three by three matrix if you introduce a kind of intermediary category between uh you know good and bad lever to determine then you know the general rule will be if you're a good lever um then you can retain at least your vested shares or potentially even all of your shares depending on what the arrangements look like if you're a bad lever then you might lose all of your shares or you might lose all of your shares that haven't yet vested depending yep. on what the arrangements might look like okay and you say you have that as sort of a, a, a drawn out matrices it's the easiest way that we found of dealing with it diagrammatically um it, it kind of cuts through the terminology and it it basically gets to you a kind of if this then that type yep. scenario would that be something you'd be happy for our listeners to have access to yeah absolutely yeah absolutely perfect when you see these things written down tim they can be pages of pages of drafting that you know you really need to work through it's much easier as you say to uh to have it down in the in a table that sets out much more succinctly where everything is and what what situation leads to what yeah okay so we've we've defined our good and our bad levers what what else do we need to consider yeah okay so there's a there's a few um other things that we can consider here tim um so let's talk about the concept of a, a cliff which is some some terminology that that you might come across when you're looking at, at these vesting arrangements that's essentially the concept that um up until a certain point nothing vests and then at that stage the vesting starts so using our example from earlier uh with a four-year vesting period you might have a one-year cliff on that which means that during the first year nothing vests and if you leave in that period you uh, none of your vested shares are retained beyond that the vesting then starts um 
the second thing to think about is is the way in which those um, the shares vest and the, the the kind of time periods over which they vest. Again, in the example we used earlier, we talked about annual vesting. So, say twenty five percent of shares vesting each year. Um, there's no sort of right or wrong way to structure these. Um, it can be annual, it can be monthly, um, it doesn't necessarily need to be on a straight line basis. Um, it could be uh, typically in an early stage investment, it is on a straight line, but it could equally accelerate over time if that's if that's more appropriate. Um, as I say, no right or wrong way to do it. And, and I think the thing to, to kind of balance there is also um, the, the time and cost and, and expense in actually negotiating these things um, just needs to be thought about alongside what what as joe mentioned earlier what it is that you're actually giving up in in reality whether you know if your intention is to be there for the next four years um then then does the kind of the whole vesting regime become slightly less of an issue in reality and presumably it doesn't have to be just based on a time definitive uh, investment presumably you could also have uh, some sort of kpi based on performance. Yeah, absolutely, Tim. That's a really good point to make. So we've been talking in our examples about vesting over periods of time, but there's absolutely no reason why you couldn't have the vesting linked to, for example, some more key commercial milestones, uh, for example, delivery of an MVP. All I would say there, Tim, just to consider that if you're uh, linking it to a key commercial milestone, there's obviously a little bit more subject subjectivity as to whether or not that commercial milestone has actually been hit, that MVP has been delivered. Obviously, if it's linked to a, a date, there's much less room for dispute down the line about whether or not that date has passed. Okay. So I'm a founder. I've uh, begrudgingly signed up to uh, a vesting agreement. Am I going to have to do this every round or is this something that will happen once and then I'm sort of, I'm, I'm it, it carries through. I think regrettably, Tim, the answer is that it may well be. Um, and you might say, well, why on earth should that be the case? You know, I've, my shares fully vested over four years. You know, do they now need to vest over another four years? Do all those same arguments we talked about at the top of the show still hold water? You know, I'm here, I've been here for four years. So why do I still need to prove that I'm going to be around for four years? And you know, part of that is viewed through the lens of, well, this is new money coming in. So it's a new investor, someone who's making their own investment, and they've only known you for the three minute pitch or whatever the example was that you gave earlier on. And probably the round then has also increased, you know, so if you raised 1 million last time, you know, now you're raising 10 million. So it's a bigger tranche of money, you need to, you know, all, all the same reasons for proving its worth and that it's capable of delivering on its revised valuation um, need to be tested and proved. Is there ever a point prior to exit where it stops? Because certainly, as I said, you know, yeah. I, I can't help but feel defensive for all the founders out there. Yeah. there. There must become a point at which, you know, I've served the company for 20 years yeah. and we're going through, a, a let's say, a Series C, D, whatever it might be, and now I have to commit to another five years or I lose right. half my shares again. Yeah. And look, and I think uh, categorically the answer is yes. You know, and so when we're acting for founders, we'll... As a, what we normally start off by doing on these things, and this is a good place to start, I think, for any investment agreement negotiation, is to look at that cap table. And you know, regular listeners have heard me go on about this before, but you just got to focus on the numbers. Get your cap table set up. Uh, you know, it's got to be as a minimum in Excel with some automated formulae, um, which means that you can then see how much, uh, how how many of the shares the founders and, and key management will actually hold post an investment round, following the dilution by the new money coming in. Because really, there's going to be some key percentages that they hold, which are then going to affect the way in which the parameters of all of this investment agreement are negotiated. 
and the reason why that's important is that under law there are certain thresholds where if you own more than that threshold you can then either block or pass positive resolutions to do things with your company and when an investor is coming in and when an investor is going to hold a minority position by which i mean below one of those key thresholds then that investor is going to be nervous that if the founders wanted to now if there's some kind of mutiny the founders might gang up against them and then and decide to to turf them out and so as a company naturally progresses through its corporate development and successive rounds of investment are made you typically find that the founders are slowly but surely diluted below those thresholds they start at owning 100% of the shares then an investor comes in there in 75, another investor 65, another investor 55, so on and so forth. And so but surely they come down. And so those statutory thresholds start to become less of an issue. If you get to a situation where in a more developed company, you've got a founder that's holding a minority position, it shouldn't be of so much concern that that founder should be subject to the vesting requirements. By that stage, you think, well, maybe they have proved their worth. They're now probably taking a decent salary from the company. Um, and so just like every other salaried man or woman out there, they're reliant on that income and you know, making sure that they deliver on what they need to. The business has diversified away from being wholly dependent on the founder. So there are other key individuals in the business now. So if the founder left, it's probably less of a disaster zone for the company. And so you can see then that I'm, you know, this is kind of, you know, slowly but surely building this positive picture as I walk into this negotiation on behalf of the founder, that it's actually not critical for this founder to be incentivized to stay in the business in that way. Yeah. There are other levers that can be pulled and that are more appropriate. Well, and ultimately, I, I joke with my team that one of the things that you can say, right, I've been successful is that I've made myself less and less relevant yes. by bringing in people that can keep the company going if I get hit by a bus or, you know, if something else was to happen that causes me to not right. be available. Um, I mean, as a minimum, Tim, you know, clearly if you, if, if, if none of my, uh, you know, my, my, my negotiation tactics work, as a minimum, you'd want to negotiate that uh, a lower number of your shares were subject to vesting. So, you know, Joe's earlier on example was 50%, you know, you might say, well, only 40%, 30, 25% are subject to vesting. You might uh, try to negotiate that they vest more rapidly. Yep. So those staging dates are closer. Mm -hmm. um, or that there's a kind of an initial slow with maybe a ramped acceleration. Because so you're like, okay, look, really what you need is, is not, I'm here for the next two years. Then after the next two years, I'm less dependent for all the reasons I, you know, I've just described. And so then I should just become fully vested. And, 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 we go. and when we're talking about shares that are within the investment provision, is it the case that it's always, you know, we're talking both financial value and rights, or could it just be the case that rights are taken, but they're still owned in this, in the sense that if a, you know, an exit was to come, the financial value is, is rewarded to the holder of those shares? Yeah, that, that's a good question, Tim. Um, and I guess it's kind of important to point out here that, that shares have a few different things that attach to them. And, and as you rightly point out, one of those things is kind of economic value and a right to participate if, a, if an exit event happened, for example. Um, but shares also have voting rights attached to them um, and they have rights to, for example, receive information, which we talked about on the last episode. Um, the, the matrix that we talked about earlier that we'll um, put a link to on, on the site 
that will that does talk about um, the ways in which you can kind of separate the the economic rights that attach to shares from the voting rights, um, and sometimes that's one of the the ways in which the negotiations end up end up going. Um, one of the other concerns that an investor might have is that a, a founder who has left the business, even if they get to retain, say, some economic rights in, in the shares, they don't necessarily want that founder who's out of the business having a say over how the business is run going forward, which is what the, the voting rights that attach to those shares gives that person. And so the vesting provisions might say, for example, that the economic rights to the shares are kept, but the voting rights and the information rights are lost. Yeah. Okay. And when we talk about being lost, what happens to these shares that are taken from our noble founders that have <laughs> left for whatever reason it is that's causing them to leave? Yeah. And look, and, and this is, you know, this is probably the purest company law point that we're ever likely to talk about on the, on this podcast, you know, so, you know, shares just can't vanish once they exist, they exist, they, you know, like, if you like, as a piece of property, as an instrument. Um, and so those shares uh, could be bought back by the company for a nominal amount of money. Um, there's a process through which the company has to do that, uh, to, you know, pass various resolutions and so on that may or may not be possible. Alternatively, they could be transferred to a third party or another shareholder, uh, again, potentially for a nominal sum. Um, so, you know, whilst they might be you know, bought for a pound, even though their value is, you know, 100x that. Mm -hmm. um, alternatively, one of the options is exactly the one that Joe's just described, which is kind of that balance between full vesting and half vesting, you know, kind of lose them or don't lose them, which is they're actually retained by, um, by, by the holder. But they lose all of their voting rights or, uh, and retain their economic rights, or they in fact lose all of their rights, their voting and their economic rights. And then you might hear them referred to as deferred shares. And so really a deferred share is, is a share with, for the sake of this conversation, no value whatsoever. Um, and so they're there, but effectively they're worthless. Right. Okay. Okay, Joes, you've backed me into a corner. Your investor clients are very happy because you've brought me to the table as a founder to discuss <laughs> investment agreements. Do you have any practical examples that you can give that make me less fearful that this is something that I should be scared of? Well, how about I give you an example where vesting would have been good for the company, but it didn't actually exist. So there were two founders of a company. Yep. Um, there was no vesting. One of the founders left. And um, that founder was causing a nuisance, let's say, um, voting his shares and just generally either doing or not doing things which would have been in the best interest of the company, as is his right. Um, in those circumstances, we help the company negotiate an exit package for that founder. Um, and as part of that, look to agree something with that exiting founder above and beyond the kind of employment settlement arrangements as to what happened with his shares. And the thing that we settled on was rather than the founder losing those shares, clearly on a retrospective basis, negotiating investing was going to be a non-starter. Um, but had there been investing, of course, that might have then been helpful. So we couldn't retrospectively negotiate that. But what we did agree is that that, that founder wouldn't exercise their voting rights uh, in a nefarious way. And how do we you know, classify what nefarious might be? Well, we basically said they had to exercise their votes in the same way as the remaining founder did. So okay. if the remaining founder voted in favor of resolution, then then so would this um, this exiting founder. And that at least then meant that whilst that founder was kind of sat on the sidelines and, and no longer caused a ruckus, 
um, it, it meant that we had at least a sort of harmonious you know, parity between the two founders going forward. But you know, had we had some vesting arrangements and, and that founder, uh, when he left the business, would have been subject to that vesting, of course, we wouldn't have had to go through that. So very much in, in that example, this vesting agreement, had it been in place, would have acted in favor of the- The company the and the remaining yes. founders, yeah. Okay. So there we have it. Founders, you don't need to be quite so scared of vesting agreements. Investors, be nice when you're negotiating. <laughs> that concludes today's episode into investment agreements. And we're going to nicely segue for the next one into the matters involving the employment law as to not just what happens with regards to shares, but what should we be considering when hiring and putting together an agreement for key employees. So until next time, thank you very much for listening. Joe's, thank you for joining, and we'll speak to you all soon. Pleasure.